It is so good to see all of you, and um, this morning I'm going to talk about being sustained in a way that most people don't know how to be sustained, how to live life in a way so many people don't know how to live life. We were created and designed for pleasure, not erotic, dysfunctional pleasure, but pleasure that brings joy and life and peace and strength to all of our hearts, that causes us to love each other well that causes us to live life to the fullest, that causes this Christian life to be awesome and exciting and fun versus some boring, religious, doldrum, straitjacket lifestyle. God doesn't want you to live a straitjacket lifestyle. He wants you to live on fire. And there is a way to live on fire. God's original intent was created for pleasure and delight. In fact, the Garden of Eden... Eden means pleasure and delight. And so when God created Adam and Eve, he put them in a place full of pleasure and delight. And it was in that place that the enemy, a very real devil that hates you, that wants to deceive you and wants to destroy you, worked on overtime to deceive Adam and Eve and get them to to believe a lie, actually several lies, that God wasn't true, that God was a liar, and that They could have pleasure and delight without him, that they didn't need to do what he said his way, but they could actually get it a a different and a better way. And that pleasure and delight would come from eating from the wrong tree. That tree would be the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, okay? Now, for those of you that haven't read the story or haven't read your Bible in a really, really long time, that comes straight out of the first three chapters of Genesis, okay? I would encourage you to read it. It really points to God's original intent for mankind. We see in Genesis 1.28 that God desired man to be fruitful and to multiply and to subdue and to have dominion, not over one another, but over the things of this world and to live boldly and confidently and be fruitful. And then we go on to see God's plan for marriage and God's plan for a woman and how the devil hated it and through the fall that the devil would work on overtime to destroy us and to ultimately destroy Jesus. So there's a battle, there's a war, that's big picture. We have to understand that we're in a war. We have to understand that God wants to raise up a militant church. But the way that we fight is not through hatred, through spite, through knives and swords and guns, and not through bad words and tearing each other down or division. We fight with love. We fight with authentic love. We fight with the power of the Holy Spirit to transform people's lives. We do it in a much different way than the world does it. And so I'll fast forward to today. Today, you're either eating from the tree of life or from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, and I've taught on that before. And you don't even realize that it's subconscious. Here are some of the fruits of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Always judging right and wrong. In fact, I know right now in a lot of ways, I'm being judged. Am I saying the right thing? Do you like this church? Do you like what I'm saying? And I'm okay with that. But what I really want to do is get you to a place where you're not always thinking right and wrong. That's the dysfunction of religion, where we're always judging everything, okay? And we're always either A, trying to have a a relationship with being good. That's another lie of religion, that you have to be good. And what I want to tell you is, is God doesn't want you to be good. He wants you to be spiritual because being spiritual makes you good. What happens is, is when you eat from the tree of life, which is available for all of us today, 
When you eat from that tree, the result of it is genuine authenticity and, and the life you bring to others is a good thing. So he makes you to do good. But the lie of religion is, is that you have to measure up and you have to be good. And so we take that right into our relationship with the Lord. And it's in the world system. It's pervasive in the spirit of this age. In fact, many of us were raised by parents that taught us to measure up or to be good. And we take that attitude straight to our heavenly father. It's the mindset of I've got to measure up. I've got to please him. And if we don't, we've fallen short. And in turn, God's angry. He's mad. He's upset. And we let him down. And we live a life of constantly feeling like we let the Lord down, don't we? And in turn, it causes us to run away from him instead of running to him. We feel like a failure. We feel like we're never going to get it because we know better and we keep sinning or we don't even have a concept of sin, but we think that God in his, in his judging nature wants to destroy you and because you're so messed up that he's going to send you straight to hell. And that's the gospel that many people preach, which the word gospel actually means good news, but many people are preaching bad news. And I got good news for you. The Lord in his love and his life already knew that we were jacked up. And in our most jacked up state, he sent his son. Now, I just paraphrased a little bit of Romans <laughs> chapter 5 for you. But the mindset is, is you got, we got to learn to understand that God is a God of process and he cares about you and he came after you. So the devil's lie is, is when you're falling short, even, even if you've given your life to the Lord, that when you're falling short, that you should walk in shame, you're a failure, you're never going to get it, and the devil's an accuser. And so Revelation 12.10 says he's accusing the brethren night and day. You know what it means to be accused? To be accused means to tell you you have done something wrong or you're doing something wrong. It's an accusation against your life, and it's a judicial one from him that says, you are legally doing something wrong, and therefore you're guilty. That's what the devil does, and, and he does it day and night. So you've got to learn to overcome this by eating from the tree of life and getting a right perspective of what the Bible says and who Jesus really is. And you know how often you have to figure that out? Every day. Because the enemy works every day to tell you the opposite. And so you know what guys like me do is I snap you out of that. Yeah, it's good. I'm a clarion voice to get you to think right and stop living as a beat down, hunchbacked, lemon sucking Christian where you have no joy and fire and excitement and life, but you're stressed out, you're worried, you're afraid, and you're completely self-focused. Now, if you're waiting for some canned four-point message, I don't have it. The message is there's a better way to live. And the message for those of you that have, have been jaded or warped and have skewed views of religion is Jesus brings supernatural, authentic life that's full of love, care, tenderness, joy, because Jesus went through it and understood the love that the Father had for him, and now he be, he's become our example. Okay? So here's what happens. In this day and age, if you're eating from the wrong tree... You're constantly living in a world of false narratives. False narratives. What you're telling yourself, what you're believing, what you're thinking. 
It's, it's the fall of this age. It's the fall of the world. It's even the, the demise of religion, okay? And on the flip side, your soul is constantly longing and desiring pleasure. Don't we all want to feel good? Don't we all want to ultimately work hard for something that's enjoyable, whether it's what the, the rewards that come from our work, whether it's our family, it's the end of the day, the mornings, the weekends, the vacations. But your soul is always hungry for something. It's always longing. So many people are ruled by their stomachs. What, I mean, some of you have already thought, now you're going to think about, about what you're going to eat after church, right? But the, the, what I'm saying to you is we live in a world that for the most part, I'm not saying all of you, but for the most part is ruled by their stomachs, ruled by their appetites for pleasure, and ruled by material things and the next thing that's going to make them feel good or be happy to pl- so that they can be pleased. The next thing we're going to buy, the next newest gear, the next meal, the next restaurant, the next thing that's going to open in town. And I'm not saying to you all those things are bad, but what I'm saying to you is, is we can be ruled with an appetite of pleasure that ultimately breeds dysfunction. Drug addiction, pornography, self-satisfying, everything's about us. It's me, myself, and I. No one will watch my back but me. And, and we live this life that and I'm, again, I'm not identifying any one person, but I'm telling you the spirit of this age and this world is consumed by it. And even religion is consumed by it. So this morning, I want to break that, and I want to show you how you can break it, and I want to show you how Jesus broke that. Here's the setup. I want to summarize, because there's a lot of scripture, and I'm really into giving you the content and the context of the word. And a lot of times we take one scripture and we build a whole doctrine around it. We don't even know the context of what Jesus was saying and why he was saying it. We don't even know what's happening. But when you know the big picture of what's happening, when you get the the content, when you can really understand what's going on around a scripture, it puts everything into perspective. So I'm just going to summarize some scripture for you. I'm going to story tell. The way that I preach is I'm a storyteller. I challenge you. I try to be wind-driven. I try to speak to the modern-day issues, and I try to speak to all of your hearts, okay? And I have an end goal. My end goal is to get you not led by your flesh and your carnal desires or your human nature desires. Carnal is carnality is human nature, okay? It's flesh. It's animal nature. That's where all that word comes from. I don't want you to be living like an animal, desiring everything for yourself and living in the flesh. I want you to be spiritual, and I want you to bring supernatural life to your family, yourself, and everyone that you encounter. That's my, that's my end goal, all right? So I'm going to help you with that this morning. John chapter 3, verses 25 through 35, we have this, this setup going on. And the setup is this. Jesus and his disciples are baptizing on one side of the Jordan, and John and his disciples are doing the same thing on the other side of the Jordan. Now, this is early on in Jesus' ministry. He's called his disciples. Jesus had already been baptized. John the Baptist was called to prepare the way for Jesus and had been baptizing 
Jews with an Old Testament covenant mindset for repentance of sin. And he was baptizing all these outcasts of society. So tax collectors and all those that were in cahoots with the Roman government. John the Baptist was totally defying the odds, but he was doing it for a purpose. And the purpose was to completely prepare the way for Jesus. So everything he was doing was a setup for the Messiah that was going to show up on the scene, okay? And there's a lot to that. There's a lot biblically that points to that. He prepared the way in the wilderness. There were Old Testament prophecies about John the Baptist and what he would do. But John's purpose was ultimately to set the stage for Jesus. So now Jesus has gone through 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. He's come out of the wilderness in power. He's got his disciples. He's gone to the wedding at Cana where he turned the water into wine, which was his first miracle. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples what they should be doing by example. Whenever you're training somebody, there's a pattern. You first explain it to them, then you show them, then you walk with them while they do it, and then you empower them to do it on their own. Okay? It's basic one-on-one of how we train people at my coffee shop, waiters. You, you show them, you teach them, you have them shadow you, and then you shadow them, and then you say, okay, now you've got this, you can do it. The good news in the kingdom of God is that Jesus never stopped shadowing you. That's one cool thing, by the way. In his training mindset, he's always shadowing you. Okay? So, a dispute arises from a certain Jew. We don't know what kind of Jew it is, but got to be some legalistic Jew. A dispute arises about basically the legality of what's happening here. So John's doing it from an old covenant mindset, which could make sense to the Jews, even though the Jews didn't like it, because all these tax collectors and sinners were now, instead of going to the temple and doing it the religious way, we're going to the Jordan River. Okay, again, a setup for Jesus And so this Jew basically comes and starts disputing about ceremonial washings. I mean, something I don't even, didn't even care to study out. It's somewhere in the Old Testament, whatever's happening, he wants to bring a dispute about it. And so John makes this incredible statement about why people are now going to Jesus. In John 3.27, John says, basically, you can only receive what was given to you from heaven. Do you know that the Bible says every good gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights? Every good gift. Now, how you use that gift is a different story. There are some incredible, incredible musicians, some of the best drummers and bass players in the world. I won't even name them. I mean, how many bands, secular bands are or did we grow up listening to? And even now when I flip through the XM stations, I'm like, man... I'm listening to some of that 70s classic rock. I'm like, this is the best music ever made. <laughs> all right, guys, you can laugh. I'm try- <laughs> it's all right. Yes. The point I'm trying to make to you is that every good gift comes from the Lord. Even psychics have a gift, a good gift that came from God. Come on, but they choose to use that gift in a way, they choose to take what God has given them and use it erroneously for themselves. And in the case of psychics, which I won't fully go down that route, it's fortune telling. Fortune telling. With prophets, it's for, take out the chun, 
foretelling. Okay? Basically, we're bringing revelation to bring life to people, and we're not doing it for money. So psychics take their gifts, and all these other people all over the world that have very real gifts and talents from God are using it not for the kingdom purposes, but for themselves. Okay? You know it's of the Lord when it ultimately has a purpose to point you to Jesus. Okay? Always remember that. So, John makes it very clear like that, look, what Jesus has going on has come from the Lord. And then John goes on to say this profound statement. He says that he has to basically decrease so that Jesus could increase. That's John 3.30. John gets this awesome understanding that we all should be living in today. Somebody's going to come up behind you that can outrun you, and you should actually propel them instead of being competitive and instead of allowing divisiveness. It's not about competitive churches. It's not about who's a better preacher. It's not about who's got more people. That's not how you measure success. Our jobs is to propel the next generation. And John would get the understanding that, and granted, this is Jesus the Messiah, but I love this statement. He's like, look, my job is to propel these young adults and my children and your children as they're coming up to run even stronger and further and farther than I can. But I am sure going to give it all I got to outrun them. That's my attitude. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them a run for their money, right? And that's what you should do too. But we have to have this understanding that it's not about us. It's not about us being competitive. It's not about my ministry. It's not about your thing. What I'm doing, like, I chose to rebuild Port Aransas because I had this picture of 20, 30 years from now handing that shop over to my children as a legacy. Now, they may not want it, and that's okay. I'll just sell it. Or I'll close it. It doesn't matter. But what if they do? At the end of the day, I want to leave something for them that they may want because I'm thinking 10, 20, 30, 40 years, 50 years. Same with this church. Your kids should be taken over this church. My kids should be taken over this church. The young adults and the children and the two-year-olds in, in the nursery right now and the babies and the ones to come are the ones that have to take this legacy forward. That's what needs to happen. John made it very clear that his role was to prepare the way. And he knew that Jesus was the son of God and that the father had placed all things in his hands, verse 35. So I've set it up for you. John knew clearly. Now when we move to, to chapter four, Jesus and the disciples' ministry starts to take off. And at the very begin of the, beginning of chapter four, it says that Jesus, while he was baptizing, starts to gain more disciples. His ministry's growing, and it's overshadowing John's ministry. So now, guess who's taking notice? Not just one Jew, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees start to realize, hey, what's going on over here? Jesus' ministry's taken off. John's on one side. Jesus on the other. Je Jesus is gaining more disciples. So Jesus makes a profound decision to go, to leave, and go to Galilee. And there's several reasons why Jesus might have left to go to Galilee. One, he didn't want a competitive spirit amongst the multitudes. This isn't church competition. I know Western America has, in a sense, created this system because we can church hop all day long. You need to find a family and stay there. It's about family. It's not about style and preference. It's not about the preacher of the month. 
It's not about whether you like me today or you like me next week. Some weeks I'm good, some weeks I'm not. What you need to look for is culture and family and mamas and papas and people that love well and aren't freaky, weird, religious. Find people that you want to do life with and do it. It's not about the pastor. It's about the culture of the people and the family around them. And yes, they may be the father that's taken the lead, but go see what has been produced because you know a tree by its fruit. It can't be a one-man show anymore. We can't chase after personalities because if you chase after me and this church grows to 10,000 and God forbid I did something wrong or fell from grace, which I believe I never would, then what? We see it all the time. Mega church pastors fall and the church split. And now everybody that put all their trust in a man now is angry at God. And they walk away from church and they don't go back anymore. Jesus would go because he didn't want to continue division between their disciples. So notice that you had one disciples questioning why the other disciples were doing something. And then suddenly you could get this division between believers, which we shouldn't have. And then finally, he didn't want a premature public outcry from the Pharisees that would thwart his mission for the next several years. So if he, got, if the, if, if he wasn't careful in what he was doing, it wasn't a popularity contest for Jesus. It wasn't, he wasn't out to be popular. He stayed in the highways and the byways until it was time to, to do everything in Jerusalem. Or when he went, he popped in and he popped out. So G, it was early on, so Jesus would head out to Galilee. And when he goes to Galilee, which is about a three-day journey, he would defy all the odds. He would make the decision that I'm going to deal with the racial divide in this nation. Let me tell you something about racial divides in America or all over the world. Racial divides... And racial injustices is a spiritual issue, not a legislative issue. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have laws in our land that stop the racial divide. But the ultimate, the ultimate root of it is spiritual. The ultimate root is spiritual. I can't stand these meta-narratives, any of them that are out there right now. I'm not even going to say them because I don't want to offend somebody. And I can't wait to do my DNA test because I'm going to have a little bit of everything in me. You know why? Because in Jesus is every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. And when you have God's DNA inside of you, you come from him, which everybody comes from him. And so Jesus is going to deal with the racial divide. And so all the Jews, now I'll just go off notes now. All the Jews, when they would go to Galilee or travel between Galilee and Judea, would go to the east of Samaria over the Jordan River and travel the long way because there was this racial divide between the Jews and the Samaritans because after the exile, you got to go back 700-something years. You had a wicked ruler that planted all these foreign nations in Israel and in Samaria, and then when the Jews came that were there or came back, they intermarried, and now you had a mixed multitude. And so the religious, staunch, dysfunctional, racial profiling Jews would have disdain. They would have disdain for this group in Samaria because they were racially mixed. They weren't authentic Jews. They weren't pure Jews. I mean, that's dysfunction at its finest. I'm telling you, everything we're dealing with today Jesus dealt with or is in the Bible. You'll find it in the word. I guarantee it. And then you have this, 
you know, the, in the rabbinical law, the man-made rabbinical law, there was the saying, it's better to burn the law than to give it to a woman. Women were disdained. Women were considered to not have the mental capacity to understand the law. It was so dysfunctional. So guess what? So Jesus' ministry is growing. Pharisees recognize it. So Jesus says, I'm headed to Galilee. And by the way, when all of you were going one way, I'm going to be the fish that swims upstream. I'm going through Galilee, or I'm going through Samaria. So he goes to Samaria. It's a long journey. It's been a long day. He sits down at the well. I'm paraphrasing a lot of John chapter 4 for you. I'm going to paraphrase it all for you. Story time. Go read it for yourself. You'll get a ton out of it. So, John, so there's this one thing I wanted to point out to you in verse 4, John 4, 4. You know why Jesus chose to go through Galilee? Or I mean through Samaria? Because he had to. That's all we know. Look at it, John 4, 4. It says that he had to or he needed to. That's all you know. Why in the world did Jesus have to? Because he was spirit-led. And whatever the spirit tells you to do, you do. And even when it defines, defies all the odds, you do it. And even when the religious leaders of the day would come against you and tell you you're so jacked up, as long as it lines up with the word and you're being spirit-led, and it, and it may not make sense in the natural, but there's a difference between right and righteous. And Jesus was being righteous. And Jesus was making the choice to do whatever the Holy Spirit was propelling him to do. And that meant going to a place that few would ever go. And that's why I lead the local chapter of the tribe of Judah motorcycle ministry because it ministers to outlaw bikers and it goes where few Christians will ever go. And now I've made inroads and friends, authentic friendships with people that will never shake your hand with Satan tattooed all over their neck, but they come and they give me a big hug because I've loved them well without a hook in my hand. I don't have any hook in my hand. There's no hook. We got to start living our lives without hooks. How about if we just love really, really well and let love do what love does best? So that's what Jesus did. So Jesus would defy the odds. He'd go to Samaria and he'd sit down at a well and there's a ton to the story. I'm not preaching on that story right now, but I'm summarizing it for you. He'd sit down and there's a woman there and it was forbidden ever for a rabbi. Jesus was considered a rabbi. It was forbidden ever for even a man publicly to talk to a woman, especially in his position, and especially a Jew talking to a Samaritan. So he would just shatter racial and gender lines. And ultimately, this woman would become the first prophetic evangelist in the Bible. The first evangelist would be a woman. The first prophet in the Bible in the New Testament was a woman. Anna, a prophetess would recognize Jesus, the Messiah, as a baby and then declare, this is the one. This is the one. Jesus, a little baby. And Anna, the prophetess, woman. Deborah, the prophetess, woman, judge in the Old Testament. We got to get over these dysfunctions that a woman can't be in ministry leadership. And women, you need to start rising up and believing in yourself because this is the time of the bride. This is the time for the bride. So, the, so when they get to the well, Jesus leaves. I'm sorry, Jesus' disciples go into the city to get food. They're hungry. And they leave Jesus because they're hungry. Do you see the picture? They're like soul-driven, I need food. Jesus is like rock and ministry. 
and they leave Jesus at the well. It kind of sounds like a lot of our lives. There is a well that Jesus is at, but we're off chasing food, trying to please ourselves. There's a whole spiritual analogy there. You can figure that out. And so Jesus has this conversation with the woman. He says, will you give me something to drink? And she's like in shock. What are you talking about? Why are you a Jew asking me, a Samaritan woman? There's this whole division. They get into a big discussion. Jesus says, if you knew. Everybody say, if I knew. I love that little statement there because it's like, really, if you knew. And Jesus says, or if you knew actually who was asking you, you would ask me and I would give you living water so that you'd never thirst again. And then she's like, what are you talking about? And then Jesus asks her a question, where's her husband? I love the setup. Jesus just tricks her. Jesus defies it all. Jesus pretends like he doesn't know, but he really knew. How's that for shattering your religious paradigm? Because in the natural, that seems pretty deceptive. I'm just telling you a story I really love. Some of you don't know it. Read it. John chapter 4. Jesus says, where's your husband? She says, I don't have a husband. Ha! Got you. He goes, yeah, you're right. Because you've had five. And the one that you're with now is not your husband. And she's like, she turns white as a sheet. You're a prophet. It's an awesome story. But boy, would I like to tell you more about that. But I'm not. So let's jump to verse 27. The disciples come back, and they are, let me tell you about this word surprised in the Greek. This word surprised doesn't mean they're appalled. This doesn't mean like they're like, oh my gosh, I can't, they're not thinking Pharisee. They're like, the word surprised means to be, to marvel and to be amazed and filled with wonder. Because they're like, I can't believe this. Look at what Jesus is doing. This is incredible. He really is tearing down these religious paradigms that have held us back because those disciples were not temple churchgoers. They were foul-mouthed, drinking fishermen living on the side of the sea, not caring about the religion of the day. So now they're like, yeah, Jesus is doing what he said he would do and who we believed that he was. This is why we followed him. But still, in the back of their mind, they're thinking, what's this woman doing here, and why is he talking with her? In the back of their mind, because that's the, that's the religious deceptive lie. You can still love it, but in the back of your mind, the devil is still trying to bring religious deception to get you to think, or to find a fault, or to wonder why. Yeah. Wrong tree. You don't understand the deceptive subtleties of eating from the wrong tree. It's so subtle. It's just incredible. So verse 28, then leaving the water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, first of it starts evangelizing, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? So they came out of the town and made their way towards him. Now later on, it says that Jesus would actually stay there for two days, discipling, mentoring, and the whole town would come to know him. It's powerful. So Jesus is sitting there, disciples come back, the woman's left. Now, you already know all these people are coming. It's possible Jesus could sense it and feel it. So the disciples said, eat something. But Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And that really is the premise of my message today. The disciples said to each other, could he, could someone have brought him food? They're still thinking in the natural. And then Jesus says, 
Verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still, the four, it's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for the harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you haven't worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. It's a powerful, powerful set of scriptures. It's powerful. Because Jesus says, first, there's food that you know nothing about. And I want to just say this to you, and I'm going to say it as lovingly as Jesus did. There is food many of you know nothing about. And when you finally step into to doing what God has in store for you, and you start releasing what he's put inside of you, and you start becoming who he's destined you to be, there's a supernatural fuel that comes into your life that suddenly the desires and the pleasures for... doesn't mean you won't get hungry. doesn't mean I don't want to eat food. But understand that food and the natural earthly desires don't rule my life. And that's why fasting becomes so important because what fasting does is it brings you back to that, re, that understanding. And now, the way that we live during the fast was the way we should always live. It doesn't mean we live a life never eating, but it's the, it's the spiritual understanding that the food that Jesus gives and, the, and by doing what he's called you to do and being in position, now it's so much better than the things of this world. And so Jesus didn't even care about the food. In fact, he said to the woman, I got water that will, in fact, I'm thirsty, but really what I have for you is even better than this well. And then he goes on to say, my food is to both, everybody say, to do and to finish. So there's this understanding, it's not just knowing the will of God. It's not just knowing the will of God. It's doing the will of God. Many of you are like, man, I just want to know. Okay, if you knew, would you do? And so it's also enduring. You have to have endurance in your life. I'm in this for life. Yeah, I have my moments. Yeah, I have my days. But you know what? They get less and less and few and few because I grow more and more. And what I found is when I stop releasing what's inside of me and giving it to others, my soul starts to get hungry for everything else. And when I stop eating from the, from the bread of life, Jesus said he's the bread of life. He says, I'm the tree, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He's the bread that came down from heaven. He's the living water. And so if you're not eating from him, what happens is, is your soul now starts to crave the pleasures of this world. So the answer to resolve pornography is to get you fully satisfied and fascinated with the Lord. The answer to drug addiction is to get better pleasure somewhere else. You still have to deny yourself and pay the price to get it, though. See, everybody wants the benefit without the cost. And it doesn't work that way in the kingdom. There's a benefit, but it only comes with the price. And the price is laying your life down. I'll leave you with this. Matthew chapter 4.4. 4. In this story, this is earlier on from what I just read to you. In this story, Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil. He said, well, God would never lead me out to be tempted by the devil. Well, read the scripture. I don't know what to tell you. Matthew chapter 4. It's there. Basically, what was, it's like Jesus, it's like the father leading the Israelites. 
the long way through the desert to the promised land instead of the short way. Because he wanted to teach them and to train them and to test them to see if their hearts would really be loyal to him. It would be great if you never had a battle. It would be great if you never had a crisis. It would be great if you never... Wouldn't it be awesome if you never, ever had anything ever hard in your whole life? Not reality. So what happens is, is your faith becomes resilient because it gets tested. I'm more on fire today because of what I've gone through in my life. And so... Read the, you go on, read, it says, and the devil took Jesus up to a high mountain. I'm like, how does the devil take Jesus anywhere? Have you ever thought about that? I'm reading my Bible. I'm like, wait a minute. And the devil took him, took Jesus. I'm like, how does the devil take Jesus anywhere? But see, Jesus was fasting for 40 days. And in that fast, he was learning and discovering the power of the Holy Spirit to sustain him and defeat him. So later when Jesus would say, I have food you know nothing about, he learned it here. He got the revelation of the food available to him to sustain him from this place. Because go back a verse. The devil says, if you really are the son of God, why don't you turn these stones into bread? Because Jesus was hungry in the natural, physically. He was still a man. We still get hungry. But that Jesus learns and discovers this profound revelation that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And this word for word is the word rhema, not logos. This is logos, written. Rhema is God breathing upon you. And I hope and pray that as I talk, God breathes upon you and speaks to you. And then what happens is you go, just like in the garden when the Lord reached down and put his face in the face of Adam coming out of the clay, and he breathed the Holy Spirit right into him. And it made him come alive. But God breathes upon you when you get this inside of you. Now you can not have the word and not know the word and God still draws you and you still hear him say, I love you and I want you. But to be sustained for the rest of your life means you've got to be constantly getting matrix downloads. Now matrix not in the Bible, but I like to say it that way. Matrix downloads from heaven mysteries of the kingdom of God and wisdom and revelation and bridled lifestyles that sustains you. And then you start doing what he tells you to do because you can't hear God's voice and not be obedient to do it. And then when you start being obedient to do it, suddenly it's like, man, I don't even need to eat. I mean, I will at some point, but I'm so fueled that food's the last thing on my mind. And when you're not reading your Bible and hearing the word of God spoken to you, you know what happens? You're a spiritually malnourished Christian. You're spiritually malnourished. And you wonder why your world's a mess and why you're fighting with your spouse and why you're not happy and, the, and you're never content and you can't sleep at night and you're chasing the next thing. It's not such rocket science, guys. You got to pay the price to get it. But when you pay the price, the reward, let's go back. We, I, we won't go back there on the screen, but I'll go back to the story. Jesus uses the example of stop saying in four months from now the harvest is coming. It's ripe now. And if you'll start working, you'll get wages. So he's using the example of I'm going to be fed because I'm getting my wages. I'm so fired up. I'm so passionate about what I'm doing. It's not about my stomach anymore. It's not about my material possessions anymore. Let's all stand. <laughs>